thank you for your kindness to Michelle and myself. You've warmly embraced us. We appreciate your fellowship and, and your love in, in Christ. It's been a joy and a delight to be with you. Well, as we continue our study on Psalm 23, I want you to know that depending on which Bible translation you use, there are between 114 and 118 words in Psalm 23. You don't have to try to count them all right now, but none are more important than the words that we read in the very last verse of this Psalm, verse 6. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This concluding verse of Psalm 23, it's been called the sixth string on David's harp. And it's one that sounds, it just sounds a note of confidence, a note of assurance. And the reason this final verse resonates with such confidence, such assurance, such certainty is because having expressed the goodness of the Lord up to this point in his life, as David looks ahead to the future, the unknown future, he tells us that he is absolutely certain, he's absolutely sure that God's goodness and mercy or his loving kindness in his life will not cease but will continue until he is safely home in heaven where he will dwell with the Lord forever and ever. You see, Psalm 23 is David's testimony to the fact that God has been such a wonderful shepherd to him, such a kind, tender, merciful shepherd to him. And that, folks, that's really the gist of Psalm 23. If you have not been here for the retreat, that is the gist of it. As one of the Lord's sheep, David takes up his pen. He writes this psalm in order to let us know that his divine shepherd has just been so incredibly kind to him by providing everything he needs, not everything he needs in the sense of uh, material goods, but everything he needs to carry on a healthy relationship with the Lord. And that's why he begins Psalm 23 with these now famous words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so from verse 2 all the way to verse 5, he tells us exactly what the Lord has provided for him so that he can continue walking in the warmth and smile of his fellowship. Using the language of a shepherd in his relationship to one of the sheep, David unfolds what God has provided for him. And I'll just very quickly review, especially for those of you who have not been here. First thing that he tells us God provides for him is rest, peace in his heart, so that like literal sheep who feel so safe and secure, only when they know that their shepherd is there to care for them. David said he feels comfortable enough to like a shepherd who will, uh, a sheep rather, who will lie down and rest in green pastures, so he is at rest in the Lord. The first thing God provides for him and for us as his sheep is rest, great peace in our heart. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. However, David knows his own heart, just like we know how sinful we are, and we are prone to wander away from our shepherd. We wander into sin because Somehow we think that we know best, we make decisions contrary to scripture, and so David says that when this happens, he restores him. Restoration, that's what God provides for him. He restores my soul, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Because the Lord loves him so much, David says that when he wanders, 
And David did wander quite a few times in his life, though he's known as a man after God's own heart. But like us, he wandered, and God convicted him of his sin, brought him to the point of repentance. And once that happens, his shepherd returns him to the fold, to his fellowship. So now he's once again following the Lord, just like you, just like me. When we wander from the Lord and we repent and confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. We're back in the joy and the warmth of his fellowship and, um, and he guides us in paths of righteousness. So he tells us how to stay home and don't wander again. The paths of righteousness are the paths that he reveals to us in his word. But in following his shepherd, David finds that at times, though he's in fellowship with the Lord, he's called to follow the Lord through some very dangerous paths, which he calls the valley of the shadow of death which as we saw yesterday, it's a reference to those dark and shadowy valleys in Israel. In a broader sense, though, they refer to those dark and difficult times of uncertainty that we, we all at some point go through, some more than others, some darker than others. But David reveals that in spite of the dangers involved in going through these very dark, deep valleys, he's not afraid. Why? Because God provides something else for him. He provides protection. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and that's important, he says, even though, meaning I'm following the Lord, I'm not, I'm not in sin, I'm following the Lord, even though, following the, the paths of righteousness, even though I'm, as best as I know, I'm obedient to the Lord, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, I don't fear any evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So knowing that his shepherd is right be, beside him, so close that he now speaks to him, he's not talking about the shepherd, he's talking to the shepherd, for you are with me. David says he can handle anything. And finally, after completing his journey through those dark valleys, David tells us something we have not studied just because there were only four sessions and not five. If we had five, I would have gone over this. We haven't covered in our studies, but I'm mentioning it now. And that is that his shepherd, knowing that, that he is exhausted from all the difficult traveling, especially going through the Judean wilderness and those dark valleys, that he knows, the shepherd knows he's in, good, he's in need of a good meal. He's in need of some refreshment. He leads him to his home, where as a gracious host, his shepherd ministers to his physical needs by providing food, water, and some olive oil to renew his strength. That's what verse 5 is about. He says, you prepare a table before me, <coughs> excuse me, in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. So this has been David's testimony to the Lord being his shepherd. He wants all of us to know that God has been just so good to him in that he has met every one of his needs. And David's purpose in telling us this, his reason for writing Psalm 23 is so that we will know that what the Lord has done for him, he does for all of his sheep. So that if you are one of our Lord's sheep by faith in Jesus Christ, then he gives you rest in your heart. He restores your soul. He protects you from your enemies and he, he meets your physical needs. But having read all these wonderful things that David has said about his shepherd, at this point, we're faced with an all-important question. We know that God is tender. We know that God is a kind, merciful shepherd. David's told us that. But what he hasn't told us, what he hasn't told us, folks, is how long will God's tenderness and kindness to us last? 
Will he ever grow tired of caring for us as his sheep? Because after all, as I've emphasized this week, sheep are pretty dumb. They're, they're really dumb, and like us, they do a lot of dumb things. We do a lot of dumb things, foolish things. So will God ever grow weary of shepherding us, providing for our needs? In other words, will we ever reach a point in our lives where the Lord will just stop supplying our needs? That is to say, will he ever quit shepherding us and say, that's enough, enough with these people? Well, that question and that issue is apparently on David's mind, was apparently on his mind as he brings Psalm 23 to a close, because in this final verse, verse 6, he talks about what will happen to him all the days of his life, meaning what? Meaning all the days ahead of him, those days that he has yet to live out. Now, from our perspective, he's been long gone, he's been dead, but from David's perspective, he hasn't lived out those days yet, the rest of his life. From that moment on, how will God treat him? See, David's told us how good God has been to him, but only up to this point in his life. But now he proceeds to tell us how God is going to treat him in the future, and not just his future on earth. Notice, he takes it even further by speaking about what will happen to him when he dies, when his days on earth come to an end and he enters into eternity. And what David concludes is that his shepherd will never, ever abandon him. He'll never stop taking care of him. He'll never cease from shepherding him and meeting his needs because he knows that for the rest of his life and even after his life on earth ends, the Lord will still be there for him meeting his needs. What a precious, precious truth this is. And what is it that David needs as he faces the future? Well, that is the subject of the final verse of this magnificent psalm. As David tells us, he's confident that whatever the future holds, and at this point David didn't know all that the future held, he knows that God will continue being his shepherd and will continue providing for him, and what the Lord will provide for him from this point on is the greatest thing that any of us need, what David needed, what you and I need, namely his kindness. God provides his kindness. Verse 6 again, surely goodness and loving kindness or mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, as David brings this masterpiece of a psalm to a close, he draws a conclusion about the Lord based on what he already knows about the Lord, knowing that God has always been good to him and that he's always treated him up to this point with kindness so as to meet every one of his needs. David knows that he can count on God's goodness and loving kindness following him all the rest of the days of his life. Now, we know that, that this is what David is, is saying because we can read these words, right? You don't need me to, to read this and to explain these words in the sense that you can read it. But to understand the depth of what David is talking about, that requires us to do some thinking. This is a thinking verse, and I, I want you to track with me. To begin with, then, it's important to notice that David starts this sentence with the word surely. Now, this particular Hebrew word can be translated into English one of two ways, either as only or as surely. And those who think that it should be translated as only, they believe that what David is actually saying is that in the future, only God's goodness and mercy will follow him to the exclusion of all other things. In other words, God's kindness to him will be so great that anything else like adversity 
it's not even worthy of being considered or mentioned because it just won't be his experience. That cannot be. That cannot be the right understanding of this. It can't be what David is saying because the Bible teaches that adversity is a reality for every believer in Christ. And as we read the Psalms that David wrote and we study the life of David in the Old Testament, we see that David was very much aware that his remaining days would be filled with all kinds of problems, difficulties, disappointments. In fact, God specifically told, he revealed to David that his life was not going to be an easy life. I'm referring to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, where God actually revealed to David the difficulties ahead for him. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, having taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Now what we read here is that God severely disciplined King David for his sin with Bathsheba and against the sin against Uriah, her husband, by giving David much adversity. This was God's discipline, chastisement in his life. And notice that this discipline will be long. It would continue throughout David's lifetime. In other words, David would experience continual violence related to his family, just as he had been violent in making sure that Uriah the Hittite was killed by the sword. And because David had done evil to Uriah's family, so David would experience evil in his own family. And that's exactly what the word of God tells us happened. One of David's sons violated one of his daughters, a stepsister. Another son killed his own brother. And that same son, Absalom, rebelled against David and almost killed David and almost destroyed David's kingdom. In addition, because David's sin with Bathsheba was of a sensual nature, Absalom would have relations with David's concubines during his rebellion. And so going back then to Psalm 23, we know that in light of all the horrible things that God said would happen to, to David and his family would take place, David couldn't possibly mean that only God's goodness and mercy would follow him and nothing else of a negative nature because David knew that his life was filled with all kinds of problems and adversities and it wasn't going to get any easier. See, what David means by this statement is surely, certainly, Without any doubt, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. What he's saying is that in spite of all the adverse circumstances that I know will be my experience, I am absolutely certain, I have no doubt that God's goodness and his loving kindness will also be there following me throughout the remaining days that I will live. Now, this is a, a truth that we have to stop. We have to think about, we have to digest for ourselves because at, at times all of us, if we're being honest, we would have to admit that we've had trouble believing that God is good and God is kind to us when we're going through tough times and we're suffering a great deal. In fact, sometimes when we're going through a hard and painful trial, it, it's really easier to believe that God is sovereign and God is powerful than it is to believe that he's good and that he's loving. So let's consider how to understand David's word when he says, surely, Goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. 
To begin with, it's important to understand the actual meaning of these words. Two words, goodness, and my translation says loving kindness. The Hebrew word for goodness essentially means that which enhances, that which promotes one's welfare, meaning that it's something beneficial and helpful. There's nothing terribly deep about that. It means beneficial, helpful, goodness. Hebrew word that's translated loving kindness or mercy means exactly what it sounds like. Kindness, his favor, steadfast love. In fact, this word actually comes from another Hebrew word that means to bend or to, to bow oneself or to incline oneself. So the thought then, it's a beautiful thought behind this word, is that God's love for us is condescending in, that, in the sense that he stoops. It's as if God bends to serve us by being kind and merciful to us, extending his grace, extending his favor to us. So then what David is saying is that he is absolutely sure that throughout his lifetime, right up until the day he dies, God's goodness, those things that promote his welfare, and God's loving kindness, his acts of compassion and grace, he's absolutely certain they will follow him. And by follow him, David doesn't mean that they'll just nonchalantly or casually tag along as if they have nothing better to do. No, you see, the word David chose to use for follow, it means to pursue. And you might want to write that down. It means to chase after someone. It's, a, it's, a, it's an action word. It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament to speak of a military troops pursuing each other. So what David is saying is that God is so determined to extend his goodness and kindness to him that he won't ever let him out of his loving care. The Lord will make sure that he continuously pursues David with goodness and mercy up to the very day that he dies. Charles Spurgeon called these two divine virtues of goodness and mercy. He called them God's twin guardian angels. <coughs> Spurgeon said this, These twin guardian angels will always be with me at my, beck, in my, at my back and my beck, just as when great princes go abroad and they must not go unattended. So it is with the believer. Goodness and mercy follow him always, all the days of his life, the black days as well as the bright days, the days of fasting as well as the days of feasting, the dreary days of winter as well as the bright days of summer. So then, folks, the question that we're faced with, and I told you this is a thinking issue, how is it that God's goodness and God's loving kindness follow us so diligently, and yet at the same time we can suffer so much? How do we reconcile God's kindness to us when we are experiencing so much pain? If you're going through a severe trial now, how do you reconcile that? That God is good and God is kind and his, his mercy is following you and yet it's so very, very painful. Well, first of all, it's important to understand that this, this reality of experiencing both God's kindness and suffering pain at the same time. It's an experience that is only found in the life of someone who is a true believer in Jesus Christ. You see, David is speaking as what? As one of the Lord's sheep, as one who belongs to the Lord. He's speaking to others who are part of the same flock as well. That's essential to understand because he's not saying that goodness and mercy follow someone who has rejected the Lord and salvation the same way they follow a believer in Christ. Now, we know that God is merciful to unbelievers. It's called common grace. But that's not what David is talking about. 
there's, there's something very special about God's mercy and loving kindness and goodness to a believer. So we understand this is the unique experience of a redeemed individual, someone who has experienced conversion, who knows Christ as their Lord and Savior. And honestly, I really would not expect an unbeliever to have any understanding of what David is talking about. This would be nonsense to them. This would be foreign to them. To those who are without Christ, suffering and tragedies are usually interpreted as, if they believe in God at all, God either not being powerful enough to stop that trial or that tragedy, or God not being loving and good enough to, to stop this trial, this tragedy from occurring. As one person I remember reading several years ago said this, when asked about under, un, how to, to understand the great tragedy that had befallen some children, this person said, well, I guess God made a mistake this time. But a true believer would never think like that, let alone say anything like that, because he knows that God is perfectly holy. And therefore, he never makes a mistake. He never makes an error. He also knows that God is sovereign, at least he should know that God is sovereign, and all-powerful as well as all-loving. But knowing these truths doesn't mean that, uh, that we don't struggle at times, trying to reconcile why a loving God who promises to have our backs, to have his goodness and loving kindness follow us all the days of his life, why he would still, in his sovereign plan, send us so much pain so much suffering at the same time. How do we biblically think our way through this? That's why I say this is, a, this is a thinking verse. Don't just skim over this. How do we think our way through this? Well, it's necessary to know that whenever we are tempted to doubt God's goodness, God's loving kindness, we can always trace that temptation back to the evil one, back to Satan, the devil. And, and we know that these doubts come from him because and by the way, I explained to those at the beginning of the retreat, my cough is not indicative of being ill. I'm fine. It's just allergies. So we know that these doubts come from the evil one because right at the very beginning of mankind's history, in his conversation with Eve in the Garden of Eden, Satan blatantly accused God of not being loving, of not being kind, of not having our first parents' best interests at heart. Notice what we read, going back, if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Satan works the same way now. He's not particularly creative. What worked for him years and years ago still often works for him now. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the tree, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, notice the devil's progression of evil. First, he tempted Eve to doubt her understanding of God's word. Has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? In other words, you must be mistaken, Eve, in your interpretation of what God said to you and Adam because that just, that just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right. Would God really tell you not to eat from a certain tree in his garden? 
Then after the initial temptation to doubt the word of God, he moved on to an outright denial of the word of God. He said, it's not true. Satan, being the liar that he is, that's what Jesus said of him. He's a liar from the beginning. This is the beginning. He said, you surely will not die. He just denied the word of God. First a doubt, then an outright denial. No, it's not true. It's not true. God has lied to you. And then finally, he accused God of not caring about she and Adam, insinuating that if God did care about you, then he certainly wouldn't hold this fruit back from you, Eve. See, God doesn't want your eyes to be open because that would make you similar to him in terms of knowing good and evil. And he doesn't want you to be like him. So in, forbid, in forbidding you of this, he's withholding something good from you because, Eve, listen to me, Eve, he's not good. You think he is, he's not. Now that's how the devil tempted Eve. And that, folks, it perfectly fits his evil character because the Bible says, as I mentioned, that Satan is a liar and he was lying about God not being good when he spoke to Eve, and he lies to you whenever he whispers in your heart that God can't possibly love you or else he wouldn't let you suffer so much pain. I think we've all had those thoughts. I think we all have had those thoughts, some louder than others. You see, in contrast to what Satan says about God's love and goodness, Scripture emphatically declares that, that God, in his character, in his essential nature, he is good. And because he is good, he does good for his people. That's where we camp. That's where we, we fall. Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 31, verse 19, how great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. God has even stored up goodness for us. Good and upright is the Lord, Psalm 25, verse 8. In addition, Scripture clearly reveals that God is loving and that he demonstrates his love to his people as well as his goodness. Psalm 32, verse 10, he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. It's all around us. My friends, no matter how difficult a time you may be going through, or you will go through, God promises never to remove or take back his loving kindness from you. That's his word to you. That's his promise, because his loving kindness surrounds you and always, always follows you. Listen to these precious words from Isaiah 54, verse 10. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. What a great truth. Of course, the greatest demonstration and proof of God's love for us is found where? It's found in the cross, the cross of Christ, namely a sacrificial atoning death, Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It means while we were yet unsaved sinners, we're still sinners, but unsaved lost sinners, Christ died for us. You don't need any more proof of God's love than that. The Apostle John, though, expanded on God's redemptive love for us in Christ when he said in 1 John 4, 9, and 10, By this the love of God was manifested to us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. God loved us because he loved us, not because we loved him. We didn't. So if all of this is true, and it is, that God is good and loving and kind, then again, I raise the question, why do we suffer so much? Why do we experience so much calamity and grief and heartache in our lives? I mean, if goodness and mercy are so busy chasing after us, as the word says, then why do we still face the pain of illness, the pain of betrayal by friends, the, the pain of financial crisis, of loneliness, of the death of a precious loved one, of disasters, of, of incidents that, that injure us, that lame us, of, of being betrayed? by others, of incurable diseases, and any other type of suffering imaginable. Well, frankly, frankly, we don't always know why we suffer. And we have to be honest about that. We don't always know. Sometimes we just have to, with integrity, admit that we do not know why God sends suffering into our lives and how that suffering works together with his goodness and love following hard after us. We don't want to be like Job's friends who thought that they knew what was going on, and so they offered Job all kinds of advice, and they were totally wrong. Clueless. In his book, Is God Really in Control? It's very similar to the other book, Trusting God. Jerry Bridges writes this about suffering. When we don't understand and we can't see any benefit to it. Listen to what Jerry Bridges has said. Does God explain to us what he's doing in adversity? There's no indication that God ever explained to Job the reasons for all of his terrible sufferings. As readers, we're taken behind the scenes to observe the spiritual warfare between God and Satan. But as far as we can tell from Scripture, God never told Job about that. I don't know if you've ever realized that. But from Job's perspective, he didn't know what was going on. Job had never read the book of Job. Folks, there are times when God does not make it clear to us in our own lives why, if he's so good and he's so loving, why do we experience so much pain in our lives? But what we do know is that there is a reason. That's what we know. That in spite of your pain, God knows what he is doing, even if he does not reveal that reason to you. So one of the great truths taught in scripture, it's something that that I learned from one of my heroes, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who emphasized, focus on what you do know about God, do know about truth from his word, rather than focusing on what you don't know, what you don't understand. This is why God calls us to trust him with all of our heart, not to lean on our own understanding. I, I love this Charles Spurgeon quote, when we cannot see the hand of God, we can trust the heart of God. Isn't that good? When we cannot see the hand of God, we can trust the heart of God. And Spurgeon could say that with absolute certainty because of what Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 tell us about God. <coughs> For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Commenting on the meaning of this, these two verses, one Bible teacher said, the implication is that just as the heavens are so high above the earth that by human standards their height cannot be measured, so also are God's ways and thoughts so above those of man 
that they cannot be grasped by man in their fullness. In other words, the ways and thoughts of God are incomprehensible to man. Amen to that. Listen, there are times when we just don't understand how to reconcile God's love with the pain that he has sent into our lives. We, we, just, we just don't know. But you know what? We don't have to understand it. And we don't have to reconcile it because Paul wrote that we walk by faith, right? Not by sight. We don't have to understand it. We don't have to reconcile it. See, the only way to have peace in the midst of such pain is to apply your faith, to believe what you say you believe, to really believe in your heart that what God says in his word is true, that his twin virtues of goodness and loving kindness are really following you. Even though you can't see them, even though satanic doubts are assaulting you, you have to hold fast with all of the strength that God gives you to the truth. You grip the truth that God being wise has sent this pain into your life for a good reason, a reason that he alone knows and deems necessary. Remember the great truth of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. Sometimes our suffering and pain, they belong to the secret things of the Lord, the things he does not reveal to us. But you can be assured that he has a purpose and a reason and these are good reasons, good purposes. Once again, listen to these very helpful words from Jerry Bridges. If we are to experience peace in our souls in times of adversity, we must come to the place where we truly believe that God, God's ways are simply beyond us and stop asking him why or even trying to determine it ourselves. This may seem like an intellectual cop-out or refusal to deal with the really tough issues of life. In reality, it's just the opposite. It's a surrender to the truth about God and our circumstances as it is revealed to us by God in his inspired word. So there are times when you may suffer and you may never understand why. You may never understand how God's kindness and mercy fit with that suffering, at least not in this lifetime. But then there are other times when God does give us insight some explanation concerning the purpose for our suffering. For example, we know that sometimes he brings sufferings into, suffering into our lives to demonstrate his glory and his power and to accomplish his sovereign purposes on a larger scale. You know where we see this very clearly? Let me direct your attention to John chapter 11. This is the story when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill. Remember that in John 11? His friend, Lazarus, is ill. He didn't rush to heal him, did he? He could have, but he didn't. He let Lazarus die. And the sisters of Lazarus, Martha and Mary, were obviously disappointed, hurt deeply. They didn't understand why the Lord would let his friend and their brother die. But Jesus did let Lazarus die. Why? Well, for two reasons. First of all, so that his deity and divine power would be demonstrated to his disciples by raising Lazarus from the dead. Notice what Jesus said in John chapter 11, 14 and 15 concerning his reason for letting Lazarus die and not rushing there to heal him. In fact, he didn't even need to rush there. He could have just spoken the word and healed him. So Jesus then said to them, meaning his disciples, the apostles plainly, Lazarus is dead and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Well, let's go to him. In other words, Jesus let Lazarus die so that in raising from the dead, it strengthened 
their faith in him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, so that you may believe. It was to strengthen their faith. It's not every day you see someone raised from the dead. Listen, it may very well be that God has brought some great pain and great suffering into your life in order to either strengthen your faith or to bring someone else to faith in him. I know one of the things that Michelle and I have been doing in the recent passing of our granddaughter back in September is she, just a few days before she died, in her Christian school, she actually gave her testimony of faith in Christ. As I understand it, the teacher said that she was explaining salvation to the class, and our, our granddaughter Lila raised her hand. This was not like her. She said, could I share with the class? And she shared with the class about her faith in Christ and called them to repent and put their faith in Christ. And Michelle, in particular, has used that, used her testimony to share the gospel with others. I mean, who's, who's going to argue with the testimony of a 10-year-old precious girl who, who just died? Who, who's going to argue with that? So it may very well be that God's purposes in letting you suffer has to do with a grander purpose to share the gospel with others, to bring someone else to faith. In addition, Jesus let Lazarus die because his raising of Lazarus was all all part of his sovereign plan to bring about his own death. Let me connect a few dots for you. John chapter 11, 47 through 53, it was this very raising of Lazarus that, that pushed the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, to finally decide Jesus has to go. We have to kill him. It was all part of God's plan. This pushed them over the edge. We read this. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we going to do? For this man is performing, performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. <coughs> and you see, let me stop there. You see, behind the, the death, the murder of Jesus was this jealousy, was this craving for power. They didn't want their influence to go. Here the Messiah is in their midst, and all they're thinking about is holding on to their power and influence over the people. I mean, a man has just been raised from the dead. And all they can think about is, well, the Romans are going to come and, and take away our power. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the people, that the whole nation not perish. Now, he didn't say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied <coughs> that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now, you, you see that God had a bigger purpose in raising Lazarus from the dead. This pushed the Jewish council to say, we're going to make sure he dies. This is part of God's plan. So we can easily see these two purposes in letting Lazarus suffer and die because we now read them in Scripture so we know what was going on. But listen, it wasn't apparent to anybody at the time other than Jesus what was happening. Martha and Mary, they didn't know what was going on. The disciples didn't know what was going on. Let me say again, they, didn't, they had never read John chapter 11. They didn't know this. However, in spite of their suffering... God's goodness and love were still following them, though they didn't know it, they didn't realize it, and eventually his good purposes for their suffering became apparent. But at the time, it was a mystery to them, just as the same at the time when we're going through our suffering. 
it is a bit of a mystery to us at times. You see the same thing in the sufferings of Joseph in the Old Testament. I know you're familiar with this. Most, most Christians are. In Genesis, we read about Joseph, one of Jacob's sons who greatly suffered. First, his jealous and evil brothers, they, they sell him into slavery. And then he ends up in Egypt where his master's wife lies and maliciously accuses him of trying to physically violate her. So what happens? He's thrown into prison where he's a forgotten man. And at this point in his life, I mean, he's a young man. Who could blame Joseph if he wondered why God would send so much suffering and pain into his life? He really didn't do anything to warrant this. But eventually, it all becomes clear to Joseph because through divine providence, he is released from prison to interpret a dream that Pharaoh had. And Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that he makes him essentially what we would call today the prime minister of Egypt, so that he's now in the position to save the entire fledgling Jewish nation from dying due to starvation from a worldwide famine. And so we read in Genesis 50, verse 20, these wonderful words, Joseph's own testimony of how though he suffered a great deal of pain, God's goodness and loving kindness never stopped following him. He said this to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. See, though sometimes we can look back and see specifically what God in his kindness intended to accomplish. We look back and we go, oh, now I see what God was doing. But honestly, there are other times we, we don't know. We just have to be content with knowing that our suffering is producing holiness, sanctification, spiritual growth, in our lives, as Romans 8, 28, and 29 tell us. And I'm going to read it again. I know we've, we've shared these verses through this retreat, but let me say it again. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn amongst many brethren. So this is spiritual growth. This is God's ultimate purpose in our lives to make us like Christ, to conform us to his image. We call this sanctification or spiritual growth, but on a, on a level that I think we need to put it, we need to say, what does that look like? What does it look like when you are suffering and God is working in your life, making you more like Christ? Well, what, what does it look like? Well, one of the things that happens is that we recommit ourselves to learning and obeying Scripture. When we're suffering, there's that sanctifying process. Psalm 119, verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. This man, whoever he was, who wrote Psalm 119, it probably was not David, whoever he was said, I was, I was afflicted, I was going astray, but you brought me back, and, and now I keep your word. That's a result of sanctification. He also went on in verse 71, the same man of, of Psalm 119, to say, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So suffering in our lives, suffering in your life, produces a renewed and new devotion to the word of God. See, suffering, suffering gets our attention like nothing else, right? That's what it just does, like nothing else, so that it drives us back to the Bible. It was the 
German reformer Martin Luther, who supposedly said these words, were it not for tribulation, I should not understand the scriptures. Luther did suffer a great deal. Spiritual growth also results in being more humble, humbled by our suffering. In fact, I don't know anything that humbles us more than suffering, more dependence on the Lord. We just see our sinful weakness like we've never seen it before. More compassion as we learn to be sensitive and thoughtful towards others who are suffering too. A friend of mine recently sent me a text saying, have you seen a difference in your, in your preaching since Lila passed away? I don't, I don't know that I see a difference in my preaching. Others have told me that. A few have said things, actually one. <laughs> but I do think there's a difference. I think there's, um, in my life, there's more, more compassion towards others who suffer. Somebody tells me that a loved one dies, I, and I say, I understand. I do understand more than I ever did. There's a sensitivity, there's a, a thoughtfulness there that perhaps wasn't there to this level before. So suffering does that. Suffering makes us more tender-hearted towards others who are suffering too because you know what it feels like. Regardless of what you know or don't know concerning why God would let you suffer so much, the bottom line is that you must trust the Lord. As David did, being confident that God's goodness and mercy are just following hard after you, never to leave you all the days of your life. And you know what happens when you're old and you come to the end of your life, you'll be able to look back and testify that God has always been kind to you. That's what David did. David grew old. And he said in Psalm 37, verse 25, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. And he includes himself in that. Folks, that's the same point that David is making here in Psalm 23, that this wonderful shepherd of his, who's been so kind as to give him peace, restoration in his life, protection from his enemies, physical refreshment, in order to just sustain his life, will continue being kind to him until he draws his last breath. But then what? Then what? What happens after death? What happens after one of the sheep dies? What happens after you, if you know Christ? What happens after you die? At that point, does God just stop providing for your life? Because it's over. Well, David tells us what happens in the final words of Psalm 23. He knew what was going to happen to him after he died. He said, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What an magnificent way to end this magnificent psalm. David's still talking about God's kindness. That's the setting. He tells us that even when he dies, the Lord will continue to be kind to him because at death he'll be ushered into the Lord's presence where he'll dwell with him in his house forever. And referring to the house of the Lord, I want you to understand David is not talking about the temple in Jerusalem because there was no temple in Jerusalem at that point. Remember, David never was able to build the temple. It would be years later his son Solomon who would build the temple. And this can possibly be a reference to the temple on earth because no one could live there forever. You have to come out of there at some point. So when David says that he'll live in the house of the Lord forever, he means literally, and by the way, forever means literally throughout the years or for all time. It means eternity. He's referring to God's house in heaven, the place that Jesus called his father's house where he said there were many Many rooms, it's not really mansions, it's many rooms, or what we would say many apartments, many dwelling places. 
In other words, David knew that God's goodness and loving kindness would never stop following him, ever. He knew that they would follow him all the days of his life, and then when he died, they would follow him right into God's presence where he would spend all of eternity. See, folks, David is using the expression house of the Lord to speak of heaven. He's absolutely certain that after death he'd go to heaven, and that's the kind of certainty every believer in Christ Jesus can and should have. Jesus said these words, I love this, in John 14, 2 and 3, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I love this, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know, the common interpretation of this is that for over 2,000 years, Jesus has been cleaning up the place for us. I don't think that's what he meant. Lord doesn't need 2,000 years to do that. I think the Lord means I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you in heaven by my death on the cross. That fits a lot better than for 2,000 years he's sweeping the place. I'm, I'm going, going where? I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you in heaven by my death for your sins. That's, that's where he was going. And then ultimately he went on to glory. And Jesus did prepare a place for us by his death on the cross. He, he died for the, the sins of all who would come to believe in him. And I hope that's your heart, that you do believe in him, that you've trusted him alone for your salvation. And that's why God's goodness and mercy will follow a believer all the days of his life on earth, and then they'll follow him right into heaven where he'll dwell with the Lord forever because Christ has been so kind as to secure salvation now, that's our certain hope. That's our future. That's something every Christian should look forward to with immense eagerness. Sadly, though, there are a lot of Christians who are not too excited about going to heaven. I just finished a three-week series on heaven. But I realize that some Christians are not too excited about going to heaven, and I think the reason is because they have the wrong view of heaven. Some believers view heaven as a place where the existence there is going to be boring and dull. They're going to be singing, if there's any song that they'll sing, it's going to be like a Gregorian chant, you know, just for out eternity. We're just going to be floating around on a cloud, just strumming on a harp. And uh, yuck, who'd want to do that? That's not what the Bible teaches about heaven. If you've never read the book by Randy Alcorn, it's a thick book, and it looks like a textbook, but it really reads a lot quicker than some textbooks. It's just Randy Alcorn wrote a book on heaven. I really would encourage you to get that book. But Randy Alcorn also wrote an article. I'm sure he's written many articles on heaven. But here's a quote from an article he wrote about heaven, which he explains how exciting heaven will be. But by the way, once you read this book, you will be excited about heaven because he'll explain that heaven comes down and it's going to be on the new earth and it's going to be a continuity of the life we have now except without sin. He says home as a term for heaven isn't simply a metaphor. It describes an actual physical place, a place of fun, familiarity, and comfort and refuge. Scripture often speaks of banquets and feasts in heaven. We'll sit at tables with people we love and above all with Jesus we love. Revelation 21 and 22 Tell us God will bring heaven down to this new earth by coming down to dwell there with his people. 
There'll be natural wonders, a great river, and the tree of life producing different fruit every month. We should anticipate great sights and sounds and smells and tastes and delightful conversations. On that new world, his servants will serve him. That means things to do, places to go, people to see. As resurrected people will live on the, on the new earth, not a, uh, not a non-earthly angelic realm for disembodied spirits. We'll live in our resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth where the resurrected Jesus will rule on, on the throne of the new earth's capital city, a resurrected Jerusalem. And we'll reign with him as righteous people ruling the earth to God's glory. That was exactly his design from the beginning. The Bible begins and ends with God and humanity in perfect fellowship on earth. Because we've already lived on earth, I think it will seem from the first that we're coming home. The new earth will strike us as familiar because it will be the old earth raised as our bodies will be our old bodies raised. The new earth will be the home we've always longed for. where we grasp, When we grasp the reality of the new earth, our present lives suddenly matter. Conversations with loved ones matter. Work, leisure, creativity, and intellectual stimulation matter. Laughter matters. Service matters. Why? Because they are eternal. Our present life on earth matters, not because it's the only life we have, but precisely because it isn't. It's the beginning of a life that will continue without end. The only thing to our knowledge that really does not continue is the institution of marriage. And sometimes, sometimes Christians are troubled by that, especially if they've had a wonderful marriage and it's been very, very good and they've lived a long time with their spouse. They can't imagine heaven without their loved ones. But let me tell you what I just recently told our church. Just because you won't be married to your spouse in heaven doesn't mean you won't be their best friend. If you're their best friend and they're your best friend here on earth, it only makes sense that in heaven that friendship will be enhanced. So in light of that, I recently, as I study this, I said to Michelle, so um, we've been married, this may be 48 years, and I said, so can I hang with you in heaven? <laughs> and I waited for a moment, and she said, well, of course. And then she immediately said, but don't expect me to prepare dinner for you. <laughs> to which I said, then fine, then don't expect me to answer your computer questions then. Listen, heaven will be greater than we could have ever imagined. It will be a continuity of life on earth except without sin. Imagine that. And it will be like coming home because it will be home to us. And beloved, that, that life will be forever in heaven filled with God's goodness and loving kindness, but only if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior during this lifetime. See, this... This is the only opportunity in this, in this life that you'll ever have to come to Jesus for salvation. After you die, it's too late. So make sure that you know Christ. You, you go to a wonderful church, have two wonderful pastors. They, they would be happy, delighted to sit down with you and explain to you the way of salvation. When you do come to Christ for salvation, not only will he forgive all of your sins, he'll shepherd you with his goodness and loving kindness until the day that you die, and you will die. We all will. And then he'll take you to heaven and give you more of his goodness and kindness. What a shepherd we have. I hope you love him. I hope our time together has enhanced your love and your devotion to the shepherd. He's good. He loves you.
and he will provide everything you need to walk in fellowship with him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege that I've had these last few days to unfold this wonderful psalm to your people at Grace Bible Church of Gainesville. And I pray, Lord, long after Michelle and I have gone and the retreat is over, that these words will just still reside in the hearts of your people, that they will impact the way they live, the way they think, and that they'll be closer to you than ever before. Lord, thank you for being such a kind shepherd. Thank you for laying your life down for us. We're so undeserving, and we're still so undeserving, but thank you for providing everything we need to walk in fellowship with you. Lord, we need you. You, you don't need us, but you have provided everything for, for us to be close to you. And I pray that you'll help us to remember these truths, to apply these truths, even as we go through suffering, and to trust you no matter what. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, that you'll draw them to yourself, bring them into the fold. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.